Thirds of dream records. Okay. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest, a returning guest. His name is John Klyzek. We talked earlier this month, August 2022, about his excellent book, carrying on kind of a tradition of uh, critique of American school system. Title of that book we talked about is School World Order, The Technocratic Globalization of Corporatized Education. When we were talking, and I was reading through his bio, he said he, he really uh, had a uh, expertise on a book, very important book. And actually re me rereading it through, I saw so many things that apply to today, today's uh, world, but a uh, very important book, Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. I'll do Huxley, however you want to pronounce that. But uh, written, I think published 31, 32. He was fairly young, like in his 30s. And it just showed a lot of knowledge and he was very prescient on a number of things. But uh, John can talk talk more about that. So John Klyzak, well, but welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Awesome. So for people who may not have heard our last show, and I will put a link to that in the notes, can you kind of talk a little bit about your bio and what got you interested in becoming an expert in this book, Brave New World? Yeah, so my bio, you know, I, I teach college rhetoric, done it for about 10 years now, um, wrote a few articles on the education system, on the corporatization of it and the technology aspects, uh, hooked up with Charlotte Thompson Israby, who wrote the forward to my book, helped me get my contract with Chris Milligan. Um, and, you know, the, the Brave New World stuff, I actually, uh, I, I studied that before I really got into, you know, sort of, I guess, this what you might call the New World Order research in my book. Um, and it was actually given to me by a, a friend of mine. Um, he had a copy of it and I just grabbed it one day. It's, I, I didn't read it till eh, later in my bachelor's degree. Um, but it was at a time when I would, had sort of started looking into, you know, some of these more, I guess we might use the pejorative conspiratorial, you know, theories about society and, um, uh, um, and, and ever since I've taught it uh, with my English 102 uh, research argumentation and rhetoric class. So basically, I, we, we read the novel as something that's sort of entertaining. Um, it gives them sort of a history on a lot of the technology that's basically now sort of, you know, being implemented. Um, and, you know, so that's that's sort of my expertise has been uh, has been teaching it and, you know, having a dialogue about it, you know, several times a year for many years, last couple of years because of online. I haven't been able to have those those discussions. So it's not as fresh as it usually is. But that's sort, that's sort of, uh, you know, how I there was actually going to be a, a chapter where I was going to sort of do an analysis of Brave New World and tie it into the book. But. It just it just became the book became its own thing. It became really big. And so eventually I, I think I have some quotes here that I can pull from Huxley's nonfiction that eventually maybe that will be a book. Oh, interesting. So like for people who may not know who Huxley was, he was an important son, grandson of one of uh, was Darwin's bulldog right, with the same last name. So his family knew eugenics, social engineering, kind of racial sensibilities. Can you kind of talk about Aldous Huxley and his brother, and then kind of the background what probably influenced the information in this book. Yeah, yeah. So it's uh, so Thomas Henry Huxley is his grandfather, okay, um, and you know he's the guy that's known as Darwin's bulldog because Darwin wasn't really big on public speaking. Um, so it was it's really T. H. Huxley who popularizes Darwinism, and you know I've often said in some ways you could you could in some ways call it Huxleyanism as much as you can call it Darwinism because it just wouldn't be have become as popular 
uh, if it weren't for for T.H. Huxley. And interestingly, actually, you know, I don't know if a lot of people know, but, you know, the Darwins weren't just into, uh, so Galton's cousin is the guy that comes up with the idea of eugenics. And it's right, he basically looks at Darwin's theories of evolution and natural selection and says, well, we can sort of harness this and we can steer it and we can sort of basically control evolution uh, through what he called positive and negative eugenics. So positive is the, is the inbreeding of the elites uh, and the negative eugenics is basically uh, basically calling the what they called the un, the unfit, right? So and that was eventually became through sterilization, abortion, uh, euthanasia, et cetera. But the, the the Darwins and the Galtons and also the Wedgwoods, they they didn't just this wasn't a theory. They actually tried to put it into action. And at the first World uh, International Conference on Eugenics, um, there's a there's a they actually displayed, and you can you can find it uh, you can find it online. Uh, the the family tree of the, the Darwin Huxley, I'm sorry, Darwin Galton Wedgwood line, but in there and not as integral is 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 the Huxleys, right? And so Charles Galton Darwin, who wrote the I think it's the next million years or the, uh, something like that, in around the '60s, he he actually uh, ha has some Huxley lineage in him as well. So so they actually you know were were tight in that way. Um, and so that's where a lot of the, the eugenics theories sort of get uh, pulled into largely the first chapter of Brave New World, but there's other ways that you can see them in, in, uh, here and there sprinkled throughout the novel. Uh, Aldous's brother was Julian Huxley, and he was actually the first director general of UNESCO. Uh, and there's an infamous quote in uh, UNESCO, its purpose and its philosophy, and it says something to the effect of basically, you know, Hitler got it wrong with race hygiene. Uh, we don't want to be focused on specific races, but we do want to focus on specific genetic and phenotypic qualities. And, and the quote is something to the effect of at some point we need to make the unthinkable thinkable again, meaning eugenics. So he's basically calling for a global eugenics program. And he also called a lot for, you know, Malthusian population control, which is sort of the flip side of the the eugenics coin. And so basically Malthusianism is about the quantity of your, your human species and the, the eugenics is about the quality. But actually Darwin himself got the idea of natural selection from, from Malthus's theory. So Malthus's idea was that there's a limited amount of resources and that basically there's always competition about uh, for these resources. And it's basically from that idea that Darwin figures, okay, it's because we have limited resources that we have a competition of species and whoever wins that competition gains some genetic advantage and then that gets passed down and that's how we evolve. So it's all really part of the, the, the same milieu of, you know, what becomes modern, modern biology and, and you know, uh, genetics. It, it's, it's interesting to note the thing about Julian though, because another aspect of Brave New World is the world state, right? So his brother is basically, you know, he's the head of a global governance institution. I mean, you know, not quite a world state, right? But it's a global governance institution and he's calling for global eugenics and he calls for an optimum population size in there as well. So both of those aspects that are in the novel um, actually, um, you know, they, they were enacted by, by his brother. Right. So he's aware of what's going on. Huxley is aware of these kind of things happening, right? Yeah. So, yeah. And I should also note his brother was the president of the British Eugenics Society. Right. So this is all kind of this eugenics and that's put in, in this first chapter, this is before the discovery of DNA, right? So what is it? Crick and whatever discovered it in what the late forties. So yeah. 
it's pretty remarkable that he put that together really in that first chapter, that whole thing, the Bokanovsky process and this kind of hatchery. And they're looking to stabilize, right? So at the very beginning, this world controllers want stability. That's one of the three things. Can you kind of talk about that first chapter? Yeah, so the in the first chapter, basically what you get is sort of the sort of building the plot and the setting. Um, and you, you basically there's a... Um, not the world controller he comes in and out the the third chapter it's um he's i think he's the director of hatchery and, and conditioning um and so there you're basically there's these students going through and they're giving a uh, being given a tour of basically these factories where they breed um various human beings in, into different casts and they do it on an assembly line model uh and they do it basically in test tubes Okay, and that, and that idea actually comes from J.B.S. Haldane, um, and I believe he was a member of the Royal Society, if my memory serves me. Um, and there's a book called, I think it's Daedalus, or it might be an it might be an article or an essay that he did, but he basically posits this idea of basically artificial uh, uh, reproduction. And and uh, there's there's an interesting article as well. Um, and these are all his nonfiction books back here. It's, Interesting. And the first test tube baby isn't until like 78 or 80 or something like that. So these are all very for, uh, predictive. Yeah. 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 And what you, what you also get in there is, you know, there, it's, it's, there's also a big play on uh, Plato's Republic in the, in the first chapter as well. Right. And so for, for Plato, uh, you know, basically had a proto eugenic theory about you know, caste breeding. And his idea was that, you know, in the, in the perfect utopian Republic, uh, that you would have philosopher kings that would basically run everything and they would be of the gold cast or the gold breed. And then under them, you would have silver, which is basically your, you know, your soldiers. And then after that, you'd have your bronze. And that's, I think what he says, something to the effect of husbandmen. And uh, it's basically your laborers, your, your, and your, uh, your, your agricultural workers. Um, and what Huxley kind of does in, in the first chapter is he sort of mixes it with the, uh, the Hindu caste system. I think it's, so it's about four caste, I think. So it's alphabet, uh, delta, gamma, epsilon. Okay. So it's five. Um, and, and it's, you know, what a lot of people, they read the novel largely as uh, sort of a warning or a critique. Um, but if you read all this Huxley's nonfiction articles um, and, and you know his background and his family, it, at best, it's sort of a dark comedy, sort of tongue in cheek, right? And, he, and he's, he's, he's sort of poking at industrialists basically getting in charge of this system as opposed to the philosopher kings or to use the, the analogy in Brave New World, the philosopher kings are the scientists, basically, right? And so if there's any critique in there, it's, it's pretty much just that, you know, that he thinks that it should be in the hands of these, what he, what he actually called an intellectual aristocracy rather than, you know, corporatists. And, but but for the, as far as eugenics uh, and the caste system and the population control, um, you know, that's all stuff that he that he actually espoused. And there's a few quotes I can actually read you from his nonfiction here. So uh, so, do. It, so there's an, uh, an essay or an article he did in 1927 called The Future of the Past. And in this in this piece, he says the sciences of psychology and genetics have yielded results which confirm the doubts inspired by practical experience. We no longer believe in equality and perfectibility. We know that nurture cannot alter nature. In the future that we envisage, eugenics will be practiced in order to improve the human breed 
and society will be organized as a hierarchy of mental quality and the form of government will be aristocratic. And that term comes out of uh, the, the Republic uh, in the literal sense of the world. That is to say the best will rule. Aristos means the best. Uh, our children may look forward to the establishment of a new caste system based on differences in natural ability. And then there's another one in 1931. This is on the charms of history and the future of the past. Replaying his title here. Uh, basically, he says contemporary prophets have visions of future societies founded on the idea of natural inequality. They look forward to the reestablishment on a new and much more realistic foundation of the old hierarchies. They have visions of a ruling aristocracy and of a race slowly improved by deliberate eugenic breeding. Uh, he adds that we can imagine our children having visions of a new caste system based on differences in native ability and accompanied by a Machiavellian system of education designed to give the members of the lower castes only such instruction as it is profitable for society at large and the upper castes in particular that they should have. And then we've got a, a promotional speech that he gave for Brave New World. This was called Science and Civilization. Um, and this is sort of where he's critiquing some, some of the, the industrialist factor and in, in what would be this new planned economy. Um, but he basically is suggesting here that they would also need to not just produce, you know, the elite gold cast, but he quotes stupid people, right, quote unquote. And he says here... Uh, so, um, so industrial, so these eugenics would be quote accompanied by the special breeding and training of small cast of experts without whom a scientific civilization cannot exist. In a scientific civilization, society must be organized on a caste basis. The rulers and their advisory experts will be a kind of Brahmins controlling vast hordes of the intellectual equivalents of sudras and untouchables. So Brahmins are the highest caste in the Hindu caste system. The sudras are known as the untouchables. Uh, they're at the bottom. And then there's one more quote that is, is uh, most telling here that I'll talk to you. And that is the one where he says, here it is. Um, this is in a letter to J. Glenn Roberts. And it says, he says, quote, about 99.5% of the entire population of the planet are as stupid and Philistine as the great masses of the English. The important thing, it seems to me, is not to attack the 99.5%, but to try to see that the 0.5% survives, keeps its quality up to the highest possible level, and if possible, dominates the rest. The imbecility of the 99.5% is appalling, but after all, what else can you expect? So, I mean, that's just, and there's, there's a lot more than that, but that's a nice overview of, uh, of, of Huxley's outlook, right? He's part, he's the aristocracy. So when he's saying an aristocracy, he's talking about himself. Like, I mean, he's educated at Eton, taught um, Orwell. So, like, very literary on, you know, fiction and nonfiction. I don't remember how many books he wrote, but it was, you know. Quite, quite a uh, few, right? I mean, you know, it's, like I said, when you're looking at all of his essays he wrote here, it's about this thick, right? It's seven volumes, right? So, I mean, that doesn't include his novels, right? Um, and he and, was yeah. very similar to Orwell, very tall, like, there was like a left-wing historian named Hobspawn. He said that the aristocrats of England were very different than the lower classes. They were all taller because they had access to more resources and other things like that. So Orwell was by nature, like in nurture, his he was an aristocratic in outlook. Yeah, for sure.
Yeah, and, and he was literally part of what they called the intellectual aristocracy. So they weren't like the part of the nobility proper, but they were the intellectual. So see, they were sort of like right in there, right? I mean, you might call it like an upper middle class, but very close right. to the Royal Society. Uh, and a lot of them were part of the Royal Society. Right. So they weren't like a titled landed elite, right? No, no, not not like that. But I mean, like the Wedgwoods were extremely wealthy, you know, and they were definitely well to do. But yeah, just it's just not in that royal bloodline, so to speak. And so in this first chapter, Huxley is writing the maintain maintenance of this caste system would be done in the test tube so that the alphas would get the best stuff. And then literally the lower caste would be given alcohol or something to stunt their their progress from the test tube right yeah yeah some of them they added alcohol to make them cognitively disinclined so that they would be you know efficient for whatever lower caste they're supposed to be in and then they did things so they also were breeding not just for your intellectual grade but each of those intellectual grades was affiliated with a workforce role and so some of them they did stuff like uh, if they had to work in, in in the mines or something they would uh subject the the vials to heat some somehow that was going to condition them to be working and working in hot conditions and stuff like that so it was also right i mean so so also what you get in chapter one is basically a layout of basically the the planned economy the planned economic system uh which you know with its with its heavy emphasis on corp the, the corporate angle and, and the industrialism you know you could look at it definitely as as a type of fascism uh, but if you look at some of the, the character names, right, and some of them are like minor characters or kind of throwaway characters, but, you know, the, the names that each of these, these characters have alludes to basically this new history of the, the brave new world, right? So th this is, so there's a new uh, denotation in terms of the year, right? So we're, we're at AD or CE, however you want to talk about it, right? Uh, and then so after the world state is formed, that then we're at AF in the novel, and that's the year after Ford, okay? And so they, so they basically make, they make Ford more or less a deity. Uh, they, so instead of making the sign of the cross, they make the sign of the T, like the model T. Um, and, and they'll say things like our Ford instead of our Lord or oh Ford instead of oh Lord, right? So there's definitely like sort of this corporate fascist uh, um, dimension to it, but characters like Bernard Marx, well, that's an allusion to George Bernard Shaw and Karl Marx, right? George Bernard Shaw was a Fabian socialist. Marx is, is obviously the founder of communism. Then you have uh, the, the, one of the love interests, Lenin a crown. Well, her first name is an, an allusion to Vladimir Lenin, right? And so in other words, the, the names that these people have, the only surnames that have survived, they're not Christian surnames. All the surnames right. Do, right, you Pauli should. Trotsky, right? Pauli Trotsky was one. Yeah, yeah, that that was one. That, yeah, 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 yeah. And so, so basically, that you know, that's that's in, indicating that you know Huxley actually wants some sort of a a combination of some basically the the fascist and the communist uh, uh, flavors of totalitarianism. And I actually have another quote here um, that I can read you where he, where he says as much. And this yeah. is. 1927 this is one of his nonfiction pieces this is the outlook for american culture some reflections in a machine age uh and the quote says with regard to political democracy its disadvantages are becoming daily more apparent in america as in all other countries which have adopted it as a system of government 
The revolt against political democracy has already begun in Europe and is obviously destined to spread. There will be no return to autocracy, of course. Government will tend to be concentrated in the hands of intelligent and active oligarchs. The ideal state is one in which there is a material democracy controlled by an aristocracy of intellect. The active and intelligent oligarchies of the ideal state do not yet exist, but the fascist party in Italy, the communist party in Russia, the Kuomintang in China are still their inadequate precursors. So he's telling you right there that whatever this aristocratic, you know, scientifically controlled dictatorship is going to is going to be is going to be some mixture of, of basically all those pilots. Right. So that's this is what the brave new world is: is this whole syncretism or whatever hybrid of this worldview, right? And the, yeah. they're talking about that they had a nine-year war, so they're really trying to go in with community identity stability. That's really what they're trying to have. Yeah, yeah, that's what triggers the uh, the 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 creation of the world state, right? It's the it's the nine years war and then also the great economic collapse. And so, and what do we have, you know, just a few years after, right? I mean, we have the Great Depression and we have World War II. Obviously, we already had World War One, but I mean, you know, he's, he's basically, uh, you know, uh, alluding to, again, stuff that historically comes to pass. He, he, he it was either him or Julian, might've been both, was also part of what was known as the planning society in, in England. So they were having a lot of economic problems and there was people that were not necessarily socialist, maybe labor and orientation. Uh, you had others, you know, that were, were, were fascist leaning as well, but there was a lot of just intellectuals that, that figured that the way out of this growing depression was some sort of centralized planning, right? And, you know, they, they didn't need necessarily want to call it socialism, communism, fascism, but they, they agreed these people that were in these these planning councils that basically you know what we might call free market today was was not the way out right it's really really interesting and one of the fascinating aspects and shows how intelligent he was was the whole integration of pavlov and the hypnopedia like for me that sounds so current this whole you know i'm going to just hit you bombard you with this conditioning over and over i thought that was a fascinating aspect I think he brought that up in the second. Yeah, chapter. Yeah, the, so, yeah, the second chapter. So the first chapter is all about the eugenics. It's all about the biology. That's basically where they're in the hatcheries. And then the second chapter, they take the, the tour of students up to the conditioning center, the neo-Pavlovian conditioning centers. Right. And Pavlov, uh, you know, was just basically, you know, the, the Russian counterpart to Wilhelm Wundt. Right. And so, you know, people can go back and check out our, our last interview. But I, I I, I dug pretty deep into the history of, of uh, stimulus response conditioning, behaviorist conditioning, and operant conditioning in the American school system, all coming out of Leipzig, Germany, out of Wilhelm Bunt. But Pavlov basically comes out, out of that same circle there, right? And he just sort of brings it over to uh, the Soviets, who, who, who in many ways, you know, they, they were more into the conditioning than they were into the eugenics because it just lined up with communist theory better, right? Like for, for the, for the communists, right? The idea was that, uh, you know, the, the reason why people are exploited has to do with the, the social conditions. In other words, the political economic 
paradigm. So if you could just rearrange that properly, everybody could basically carry their weight as opposed to, you know, a more biological outview that uh, of, uh, look out that basically suggested that the reason why people are poor is because of their biology. It's not, you know, any way you restructure the economy isn't going to fix it. Right. So they were they were more into it. But uh, what, what the second chapter also focuses on in, in this gets back to my book it's actually it's the education centers as well right um and so in these neo-pavlovian conditioning centers they bring these these kids out and um the lower caste that uh you know are just supposed to be good little worker bees they don't want them to read they don't want them because they don't want them to think too much because they don't want them to become dissatisfied with their with their workforce caste um, and then they also didn't want them to spend too much time, like just out in nature. So they set, they lay out these books and they lay out these flowers and then they have these babies crawl towards the flowers and the, and the books. And once they get pretty close to it, they electrocute the babies and then they set off these explosions, right? They just, just loud booms to, to scare the babies and then to obviously inflict physical pain upon them so that they will associate those traumatic experiences with nature and reading, and that would forever condition them or reinforce the biological uh, uh, engineering <clears throat> the first chapter with this, with this uh, social conditioning. And that's basically, you know, again, that, that is uh, education psychology in a nutshell. I mean, you know, I mean, they're not electrocuting people, but it's, it's the idea of conditioning children to have responses to particular stimuli. And you can actually, think of um, that chapter as basically uh, a little Albert experiment on a grand scale. So I, I, I may or may not have touched on the little Albert experiment when we did our, our last I don't show. recall that. Can you, can you explain that? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so a guy by the name of John B. Watson, uh, he's the guy that coins the term behaviorism. He's actually a student of John Dewey. John Dewey is a student of G. Stanley Hall. Gene Stanley Hall is a student of Wilhelm Wundt. So it comes straight out of that tradition. Um, and there's actually a character. He's one of the main characters in the novel. His name is Helmholtz Watson. And that's a, a German uh, scientist by the name of Hermann von Helmholtz. Is the first name and the last name is an allusion to John B. Watson. Uh, and what John B. Watson did in the Little Albert experiment was they wanted to see uh, if they could condition this, this little boy uh, to be scared of rabbits. Okay. And so what they did was they basically the same thing. They put the baby out. They bring the, 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 the little rabbit. And then they would like bang hammers and do things to scare the baby and, and otherwise traumatize the baby. Um, and eventually it, what, what the, the conditioning was, was so strong that uh, he was scared of anything that was white and furry for the rest of his life. And if you put if you just put a rabbit mask on, just like a plastic mask, he would be scared of that as well. And, you know, they never did decondition uh the child this is i guess before they had any sort of an ethics board in the realm of psychological uh you know uh, laboratories you know um but that's that's so that's basically what that is it's it's you it's taking his little albert experiment and just you know sort of mass mass producing it wow so right so he has that in there then he has like the psychic driving you're going to get these phrases over and over and over again oh all, all through their life so he has that Ideal society is being propagandized with these state. Really, it's not almost propaganda. It's almost like a mind control. Like you're constantly getting messages at night while you sleep, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when they're in there, when they're sleeping, they get sort of a, a recorder just repeats 
these slogans for their cast, right? And it was something to the effect of like, man, I'm so glad I'm a beta because those alphas are so smart and they work so hard. And I'm glad I don't have to work that hard, but I'm glad I'm at a, I'm glad I'm at a Delta because those, those people are so stupid. Right. And so those are the types of things that they would do to reinforce their place in their cast. And then they had to wear uniforms with particular colors. Right. Um, and one, one, one other thing that we would know is interesting about the cast is that if you, they're very subtle, but if you read it, the way he describes the lower casts, sometimes he'll, he'll use terms like brachycephalic, basically, right? He's describing sort of a stunted skull structure, which indicates, right, you know, smaller brain growth. And, you know, they're effectively fr phrenological terms. Phrenology was this, this science that basically was related to eugenics that you could you could basically measure somebody's uh, eugenic capabilities, their biological uh, capabilities based on the shape of their, their skull. Um, but with the, with that, what you use the term psychic driving, right? I think that's uh, one of those MK ultra guys, right? Wasn't it uh, Cameron or yeah, one it was of those Cameron, guys? you and Cameron, they know. Yeah, yeah, did, yeah. yeah. It, it very much is, it very much is, is that. And um, you know, maybe when we get to chapter four, we'll see some, some more of Huxley's sort of connections to some of the other, uh, uh, strategies that were tried in some of those MK Ultra experiments, in particular the psychedelic stuff. It's all be um, behavioral control, you know. That's what they're trying to do. Is all kinds of stuff that's in Brave New World. Brave New World precedes that by twenty years, you know. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And the, the interesting thing with so so the other so the conditioning part, the Pavlovian, that is basically the behaviorist school of psychology. The other <clears> main <throat> school of psychology at the time was basically the Freudian or the psychoanalytic. Um, and actually, there's there's a lot of Freudian analogies they use in there, and some of it has to do with uh, the smash monogamy that is that takes place throughout the novel in terms of their the abolition of the family and their their uh, mass promiscuity. Um, but um, as as far as um, um, the 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 conditioning, the psychic driving, it's Freudian in the sense that it's the subconscious. Okay. Um, and so you have to condition the conscious reflexes to the environment through the behaviorist method, but then you also need to condition the, the subconscious. And he, the, the story that they use in the second chapter, the way that they discovered it was some little boy that fell asleep and he was listening to something on the radio and it had something to do with um, how long the Nile was. And so when he woke up, he could repeat this. Okay, he could repeat all the words that he heard but he didn't conceptually understand it, right? And so they, was, so they tried to like, what they said was this was not good in terms of practical conditioning. What it was good for is what he called, quote, moral education. And so basically it's the a priori part of the, of the thinking method, right? So in philosophy, you have a priori and a posteriori. A posteriori is basically knowledge comes after experience. That's basically your behaviorist conditioning, right? So your knowledge of, of how you want to respond to the environment comes after you experience these rewards or punishments. But before you ever come to any experience, right, we have certain assumptions that we have, these a priori, right, these, these ideas or this knowledge that we have prior to any experience. And so that's basically how you uh, create the, what's, what's now basically identity politics, right? And so, be, so before you have, have a, a, a reaction to the, to the environmental stimuli, you're putting that into this a priori category of who I am in, in terms of the caste identity. Right. It's really incredible. Like some of these words are very uh, 
they're very uh, recent. You know, they, they're in use. Identity, politics, community, all this stuff. So it's almost like those are these, some of these concepts are still filtering around today. Like they're, oh, yeah, yeah. No, 100%. I mean, uh, you know, I... As I sort of mentioned in our in our last uh, in our last talk, just looking at some of the technologies. I mean, everything that we're seeing now, you know, the the, the theoretical phases are at least a hundred years old, right? I mean, so now we're we've we've gone through the phases of you know prototypes. I mean, we're pretty much just at the phase of sort of getting everything either commercialized or institutionalized. And so then it develops from there. So he lays the groundwork in the two chapters of the whole social structure. And then he counterpoises that to their trip, the trip of uh, Lenina and was it Bernard? They trip, they go out to the Savage Reservation, right? Can you talk about what happens next? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so in that chapter, basically, um, so, so what one thing it shows is that, you know, there's this world state, right? Highly industrialized, scientifically controlled, but you know they go to what they call the savage reservation. So it, it suggests that basically you still have uh, areas of, you know, that are basically in a more or less what you might call a third world state, right? Um, and what they do there is they pick up, they end up finding a guy uh, by the name of John, and uh, they refer to him as the savage usually. Um, and he's basically um, so some somebody else had taken a vacation there, um, and apparently she didn't have her Malthusian belt. Okay, so what? So in chapter three, what you also get is they all have to wear these Malthusian belts, and they're basically uh, they dispense contraceptives. Okay, because they're they're not supposed to breed. The only the only reproduction that happens is in those um, in those vials. And, you know, it's, it's particular type, particular quantities. They even do like basically a, a cloning uh, method they call Bokanovsky's process where, you know, so you have like 99 people that look at it. Not only do they act the same, but they look the same and they're pretty much just copies. Um, and so she gets, I believe she was impregnated uh, by, he's a, I think he's the directory of hatcheries and conditioning. He, he's, he's not the world controller, but he's high up in the hierarchy. And so she ends up having this baby there. Uh, and, and so this baby sort of grows up, um, you know, on this, you know, what they call the savage reservation. Uh, and he's, he's exposed to uh, sort of a hodgepodge of like indigenous spirituality, also the Bible and then Shakespeare. Right. So, and this is all stuff that's banned in the world state. Right. So any classical literature, any concept of God, any concept of anything supernatural or spiritual, right? Everything to them is empirical. It can be scientifically measured and controlled. So he, for the rest of the novel, basically, so they're going to take him back. And basically what they're doing is the, the world controller is basically running an experiment to see. Um, and it sort of posits this, like, this uh, nature nurture debate and, and, you know, how, 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 how does it work? And they're trying to see if they can, they can get him acclimated back into the world, the world state, right? Like, will he be able to adjust, assimilate, and conform? And by the end of the novel, I, you know, I'm, we'll we'll probably get there, but you know, it it doesn't work out, right? He ends up he ends up committing suicide. That's how it ends. That's how yeah. the end of the book is. Yeah, and it is interesting because he can't adapt to these other people, and they look at him in a very strange manner 
the way he responds. They study him like a behaviorist would study a human being. Like, oh, he has sympathy for his uh, dying senile mother. This is so interesting. Wow. Whereas they would just zap people into the crematorium, right, and harvest their their ashes for for fertilizer, right? Like, they yeah, like, yeah. And there's a scene there where uh, I think it's Lennon and Bernard, or there's two people, and they're they're flying around their copter or driving around or something, and they they drive past one of these smokestacks. Uh, and they're and basically this is somewhere where yeah they're processing basically the cremated bodies for whatever it is for fertilizer or energy, and uh, she basically says something to the effect of like oh isn't it great that we get to go on you know contributing to the world state even after we're dead and I, if I might be mixing up scenes here but I think that's the same scene where Bernard Marx goes well you're just saying that because you've been conditioned to say that like Bernard Marx is this guy who uh, so he's an alpha but he doesn't look like an alpha. And so the theory is that, you know, there's like this rumor that somebody accidentally put a little bit of alcohol in his vial. And so because he is in the alpha cast, but is not actually an alpha in terms of his biology, or he, he basically, he sees things differently, right? He's in this, he's in this conflicted space. So he questions things, right? Uh, and then sort of his foil is a guy by the, I mentioned Helmholtz Watson, he's sort of the opposite. He's an alpha, but he's like too alpha, right? And he's so alpha that like all these girls are constantly throwing themselves at him and he doesn't want anything to do with it, right? He thinks it's it's basically all meaningless. And he's part of, I think, what it's called the, the emotional engineers or something like that. But he basically writes jingles and slogans to help with, with uh, reinforced conditioning. But what he wants to do is write like poetry. Right. He wants to like write something that actually means something in the in you know in the grand scheme of the universe. And uh, when 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 John suggests he brings him some Shakespeare, and he starts reading to him about you know uh, love, romantic love, and family, all these things that are you know they're like basically four letter words in Brave New World, right? So when they're when the uh, director or maybe it's the world controllers, at some point they're both uh, in the tour, and basically uh, what what they're they, they mentioned mothers and fathers and the, the, the students are like, Oh, he said, mother. Like, you know, he said the F word or something. Right. Uh, and when he, when he brings this to Helmholtz, Helmholtz, when he, he brings Shakespeare, he, he laughs, he's like, ah, you know, it's different, but he's like mothers and fathers. I mean, even his conditioning, he can't, he, he can, he, he senses there's something more, but he, he can't get there. And they have like Shakespeare and the Bible are in a safe. I think one of the world controllers has it in the safe. So like a lot of Fahrenheit 451 elements too, like it seems like. So it's like, yeah. And and that's really what di distinguishes the savage, which is an ironic term from all these other test tube bred people is that he's really thinking, he's thinking and referencing Shakespeare on these human events where these other people are just permanently happy all the time, dancing, being promiscuous and taking drugs, right? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, so what that sort of shows us is that the world controllers, I think there's 10 of them, right? Uh, and I think that might be a biblical illusion, if, if my memory serves me correct, uh, like a, a, an illusion to Revelation. But um, basically, they get to they get to read all the illicit literature. They get to know the real history, right? They get they're, they're privy to all of this information. Um, and uh, one thing that's interesting about the world controller that we learn is that so even even science isn't really science, right? And that's how he got to become the world controller because um, 
basically he started doing some of his own science. Like he started doing his own experiments, trying to, you know, figure things out on his own. And, you know, Helmholtz says something like, you know, like, well, you tell us that science is everything. He says, what you have, your version of science book is, he says, it's quote, a cookbook. In other words, right, you have a bunch of equations and algorithms and things that are given to you. And then you just, you just put in the data. Like you're not actually figuring out new equations, new algorithms, right? Doing new experiments, right? And so that's, at that point, they give the world controller an option. It's like, okay, so you're pretty smart. You can either be a world controller or we're going to exile you, which is, which is where um, I think Bernard and Helmholtz uh, wind up in the end. So, you know, they, they, there's, a, there's a riot scene at the end that involves the savage and they take them and uh, they, 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 don't, they don't kill them. So I guess, you know, I, mean, I guess it's more humane than, than 1984, uh, but they do exile them. And when they exile Helmholtz, they says, well, where would you like to go? And he says, I'd like to go somewhere particularly cold. Meaning like he has this intuition that if he's somewhere that's where, where that's not totally comfortable and convenient that that will inspire him to to write this art create this art that he, that he is uh, that he's thinking about but can't get his head wrapped around and he's similar to the savage too because the savage really wants to <clears throat> integrate all of the ups and downs of life like i want to be he makes these real forceful stages uh, statements at the end like i claim them all right so he's much different than these constantly superficial you know you're not, and then in the brave new world these people who are uh, in the caste systems they're not supposed to have a wide motion emotional range at all and if you step out of that narrow emotional range people start asking questions right like why you do this why don't you just take some soma yeah yeah that was that end that end debate between uh uh the, the world controller and and john the savage is is one of the best parts of the of the novel um, because it basically, it's sort of a rhetorical battle of, you know, old, the old worldview and this brave new worldview. And um, he uses an analogy to sort of critique the world controller. And he says something like, um, you want to get rid of all the, the difficult things, right? And he uses this fable that's, uh, that the indigenous people used to teach him back when he was on the reservation. And it's, I think it's called like the girl of Matoski. And it's this it's this fable about this young boy who wants to, you know, be courted to this, this girl. And uh, to do it, he has to, uh, I think he has to work in this field uh, garden or something. And he has to do it for however many days. But the whole time he's there, he's constantly being attacked by these, these mosquitoes or these flies or some pest that's con they're constantly flying around him and biting him. And, and basically he's saying, you want to get rid of, you want to get rid of that stuff. But he's saying that that's what makes that's what makes gives it meaning, right? I mean, because now it's not just that I, you know, I got the girl that I like. Um, it's that you know I went through this trial to do it, right? I mean, it's you know, it's, it's sort of a cliche. It's the difference between climbing the mountain and having somebody, you know, drop you off on the top of it right. with, a, with a plane or something, right? And um, and that's and that's throughout. You know, he's so he's really interested in this this other character, Lenina. Um, and, you know, she's conditioned. And so she just wants to get straight to the to the bedroom. Right. And he's like, no, I have to do something. I have to earn it. Like I have to do something great for you, something noble. Uh, and then we can do that. And then obviously he wants to be a monogamous, which which she doesn't. And so, you know, she, he's you know, 
he's constantly pursuing her. And in the end, uh, he ends up um, uh, sleeping with her. And, uh, and that's part of why he ends up, he actually ends up killing himself is because, uh, you know, he's ashamed at, at what he did. Uh, I think at, at first he, um, uh, that's before and he's, when he's flogging himself, but you know, he wakes up to this shame and um, he ends up hanging himself. And that's, that's the end of the novel. Right. But they like, there's some element of pain, like the flogging of him, people flogging him. There's something going on where they like to see this as a kind of circus event. Like they can't understand why somebody would want to experience pain. So it's there. I think Huxley's trying to emphasize like how is it really that great to be in a pain-free environment? Maybe you need to have pain. Do you get that kind of sense uh, from the book? Yeah, I do. I mean, I you know, I, I definitely think that's the the theme in there. And he and there's a uh, is it a preface or an afterword to one of the reprint editions. Um, and basically, one of the things he says is that he shouldn't have killed off the savage in the end. He should have found a way to, to get him to integrate. And I guess that's sort of him suggesting what we're, what we're getting at. Um, but again, I mean, you know, he's, he's totally, you know, just looking at the, the few quotes that we, that we threw out there. I mean, he, he really wants the plant society. So, I mean, at the end of the day, I don't know how, you know, I, I don't know how those two things can can exist for him, but definitely the that idea is there in the book. Right, and that's the whole thing. We're I, one of the things I took away was Lenina saying, "Yes, everybody's happy now." They had heard the words repeated 150 times every night for 12 years. Like they had yeah. to convince everybody they're happy. I mean, it's what do you think your your chief takeaways from this book are? Well, you know, with the end, the end kind of reminds me a little bit like the end of Space Odyssey 2001 in the sense that, you know, uh, David Bowman in the end, you know, he, he basically, you know, there's the there's the sequel where he's some sort of ethereal star child, you know, I mean, all that, that weird psychedelic stuff at the end. But I mean, one of the takeaways from it is that once once humankind transitions to this next phase in evolution that the, the old human being cannot exist. In, right. And so, you know, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, as far as Huxley goes, you know, I, I really think ultimately that his idea of a planned society, if, if he, if he came across, you know, sort of a, a, a dilemma where you got to pick one, right. Either we're going to, we're going to keep some of these old values. We're going to have, you know, some sort of a, you know, the necessary struggles that you need to, you know, to use a Maslowian term to self-actualize, if, if that's one option and it can't be, you know, synthesized with the planned society, that he'd be okay with getting rid of that and going with the planned society. <clears throat> right. I think that's interesting. So the savage represents the old way, can't adapt to this new way. But I also get the sense like this planned society is very shallow, like there's not a lot of thinking or philosophy or you know, it's set music and weird kind of ritualized dancing and things like that. I kind of felt like they had those chants that they made, you know, like we're 12 and one, one and 12 and just kind of we creepy kind of elements to it. Do you yeah, that? that's an important chapter. That's an important chapter there. Um, uh, that's I think it's chapter five. And that's basically where they're at the solidarity services. And basically it's a it's sort of a humanistic 
uh, spin on religion. And, you know, there's a there's a book, there's a novel that Julian Huxley wrote. It's called What Dare I Think? And largely what it deals with is uh, for him, the dilemma was basically there there is this a priori uh we might call it a spiritual side of the human psyche. Okay. Now, whether or not for Huxley believed that was actually connecting to something divine or something metaphysical, he, he couldn't deny that it was part of the psyche. And so there's something you have, you have to do something with that part of the psyche. So you couldn't just abolish religion entirely. You'd have to replace it with something else. And in, in these religious ceremonies, um, basically what they do is they have an orgy, they take Soma, which is basically some sort of a psychedelic slash amphetamine. Um, and, and through that, they experience what's called the greater being. Now, what's, what's, this is something on all the years I've read it and discussed it, I still don't know what to make of it because clearly there's no God in this world and there's, there's no heaven so there's, there's no indication that they believe in anything metaphysical or spiritual. So what is the greater being, right? I mean, like the, it, it sort of booms, or the, it sort of mics in as like, you know, sort of the voice of Ford or something like that. But I mean, I, I sort of, I, I wonder, is he, is he suggesting that the greater being is just the collective and the, and the greater collective experience that you get from the drugged out orgy? I mean, that's, that seems most plausible. Um, but right. and there's no there's no emphasis on individuality either in this. Maybe your caste system, but I think it is all collective. Like we're all working together as part of this caste system organization. Yeah, the slogan, yeah. yeah, one of the slogans that they use is "everyone belongs to everyone else," right? And there's no privacy. Like you're not supposed to be alone for any amount of time, right? Um, and you know, like, uh, and if you have anything that veering towards what could be a monogamous relationship like that's that's no good right like so i think it's lenina uh, her friend fanny is like you've been with the same guy for like a whole couple months or something like you know the the world controller or the director or whoever they're, they're not gonna like that right um mm -hmm. and what's what's interesting there is uh, in that scene they also uh she's like well yeah i'm gonna have to get a pregnancy surrogate soon so i guess the theory is that if they could basically flush the the body with the hormones that you would experience during pregnancy that that would sort of recalibrate her and have her back focused on uh you know sort of this this smash monogamy uh um sort of thing you know it, it, what's else is kind of an interesting little note around that same scene uh is there's a reference to the i think the girls were going to or just getting finished with a vibro vacuum massage Right. And basically, if you know the history of vibrators, they were psychological instruments at, at a time. Right. So the term hysteria. Right. This is, you know, the, the root here. Right. Re referring to like, you know, hysterectomy. Right. The, the idea of hysteria as a term, they thought it was basically just some problem of female biology. Right. And so the vibrator came came around when, you know, if your wife was depressed or having hysteria around the house. You would take her to the doctor, the psychologist, and I guess, you know, he's, it's a, he's using a tool, so you can't, you know, he's not actually, uh, you know, he, he's not intimate with your wife, but he's, you know what I mean? He's performing this, this medical procedure. So, you know, that's, that's another. That's where it all went back to. Yeah. Crazy. Do you have time for a few questions that were about the 50 minute mark? I mean, really great discussion. There's a lot in this book, a lot going on. You can see why it's still, 
important why it's still referenced i think yeah because yeah, there's can... a lot of themes in there yeah yeah oswald's asking do you know if huxley himself had rh negative blue blood do you have you ever do you know what blue blood refers to i think i think what he's referring to is sort of what happened to a lot of the royal families after a lot of the the uh the, the inbreeding um I don't think he did, but he did have uh, some some issue with his eye. And I don't remember if it was congenital or not. He actually wanted to be uh, either a doctor or something in, in uh, the medical field or in science in particular. But his, his eyes got messed up. And so that's what led him into the into the literary sphere. But I, yeah, I can't say uh, as far as the I blue thought blood. the word blue blood comes because your skin is so light that you can see the blood pumping through it. That's where I heard that term comes from. I yeah, I, I think it has something to do with what the, with the uh, the guy asking the question. I, I think you know some of the uh, and this is partially why uh, the royal family you know was very interested in eugenics. It wasn't just for you know controlling the so-called unfit, but you know they had a lot of congenital issues that they wanted to figure out. Is it is it has something to do with our bloodlines or our, or how we're breeding? So yeah. Right. Oswald also asked, do you Kleizek think Orwell was any less of a wolf in sheep's clothing than Huxley? I, I kind of do. I liked I like Orwell. I liked Orwell more, you know, before I've sort of dug into it. But you know, with, with 1984, just like with Brave New World, the way that it ends, um, it doesn't give you very much hope at all. I mean, it's really basically like, like this is the future and there's nothing you can do about it. And you, and if you think you're going to hold on to something from the past, you're not. And, you know, the other thing with, with Orwell was that, uh, you know, I mean, uh, he, he was a socialist, but he, he ratted on a lot of his, his socialist. Buttons. Yeah, he did. Yeah. 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 So Animal Farm is like an expose. It's not the, this version of socialism is not for me is what he was, I think is what he was saying. Yeah, so yeah. He wasn't on on board all the way. Yeah. He was yeah, really yeah. more of kind of sympathetic people person in my in my opinion. But yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, he had his he, he had his run-ins with Stalin during the, you know, when he was with the loyalists, you know, fighting Franco and all that. And so, you know, he saw where that could go. And I mean he remained a, a socialist all, all his life. But and I, I like a lot of his analysis, you know, of rhetoric and propaganda and stuff like that. But I, I just with the way the novel turns out and knowing some of his background, you know, I, I hate to say it, but yeah, I mean, because I, I always did like Orwell, but I, I think he probably was, yeah, not, not our guy. Did you ever, do you, did you ever hear of a connection between Huxley and Barbara Marx Hubbard? I haven't. And I just wrote a really long piece uh, on Barbara Marx Hubbard. Um, the best we could, we could tie them to, would be sort of tangentially through the human potential movement. Now that term is coined by Aldous Huxley, who is a, you know a big shot at the Esalen Institute. Um, and this gets us back to something I wanted to touch on in chapter five, which has to do with the, the pharmacology and, and the idea of soma, right? So so Huxley was really big in the in those psychedelic crowds. A lot of those guys at at Esalen. Um, oh, I should have pulled that out. I didn't think of it. I have a book called High Priest by Timothy Leary. And it's a it's an interesting like it's got like I Ching symbols and poems and essays and it's a collection of essays. It's really odd, really psychedelic, just the, the layout in it. But in there is a, he's uh, quoting when he had a, one of his interactions with Huxley. And this 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 book has nothing to do. It has has to do with sort of, you know, consciousness and spirituality and stuff it has nothing to do with eugenics or Malthusianism. 
But he said that, you know, Huxley was a really nice guy, except for when he would take these asides to rant about overpopulation. I mean, like, so he so he talked about it so much that he that this guy felt that it was necessary to note it in a text that has nothing to do with with the topic. They but, had a they um, were they were connected in the 1960s, early 60s, 61. Uh Huxley famously died the same day Kennedy, John JFK died. And yes. Which is the same day that C.S. Lewis died, the exact same day, same year as well. It's all kind of interesting because there's a lot of like mental, you know, they all stripped. uh, Huxley took LSD. C.S. Lewis had a went from an atheist to really one of the leading Christians of the 20th century. And then Kennedy. Yeah. And you might be able to to clarify this. If my memory serves me, I know you you got your book on Crowley. Crowley hung out with Huxley as well, didn't he? Yes. There's actually uh, Crowley painted his picture. It's in one of the showings that Crowley had in Weimar, Germany, in Berlin. It's listed there, but it's in a private collection. I don't know where it is, but I know that he hung out with Huxley. He, he was in that same group of these same guys. He was mixing in those same groups. So it's Christopher Isherwood, Krishnamurti, Huxley, and they all ended up in Los Angeles. Like they lived close to each other. Isherwood and uh, Huxley lived close to each other in Hollywood or not in Hollywood, in the kind of the West Side, I think. I remember, and, and Christian Murray ended up in OI. But there's a there's a couple other guys I can't remember now, but they all knew each other. They were all very familiar, and uh, I think that it became very unfashionable to know Crowley at a certain point. So I think Huxley kind of dropped his connection to him. But I think he had one of his books. One of Huxley's books was "Do Your Will, Do What You Will." I think oh. that's the title of one of Huxley's books. It was "Do What You Will." Or something. Okay, very Crowley. Okay. I haven't read through it. But okay. I, my understanding, there's also an allegation that Crowley really introduced mescaline to Huxley because Crowley was he was called anholonium back in the day. They didn't have the name Mexican uh, mescaline for it. Okay. But, okay. Uh, Huxley did mescaline before he got LSD. So, yeah, that's yeah. In terms of perception. Right yeah, now. there you go. That's the one, right? Which is where the, the band The Doors gets their name, right? It's a spin on a Blake quote. Yeah. So, yeah. And another right, thing, Well, Brave New World is from The Tempest. So this yes, is also yes. very profound. Like that, the Tempest too is like has very deep things going on. I mean, all Shakespeare really does. But yeah. it's interesting that he took it from Shakespeare, and then Shakespeare is an important part of this book because it's kind of like that humanistic learning or something and yeah. poetic sensibility. Yeah, I mean, we might mention, you know, just the whole human potential movement. I mean, I sort of use that. I, I use that Maslowian terms about self-actualization through this, this you know, pseudo-spiritual ritual. I really think that's, I mean, that's, I, I mean, he coined the term later, obviously. But I mean, that I think the sort of the, the germs of that idea are sort of, you can find them in that chapter, right? I mean, sort of, you know, reaching your human potential through this collective, through psychedelics, right? Um, and another interesting thing, you know, a lot of people don't know is that B.F. Skinner was, uh, he, he, he gave speeches at Esalen as well. So you have the behavior school there, the, the, the humanistic psychology there, you have the Freudians, you have the psychedelic stuff. Leary, yeah. uh, Robert Anton Wilson. Yeah. You got so many people located there. And the background of that place is actually much more interesting. These guys were, Murphy started it. It was like in communication with nine. Like people talk about the nine with, not Gurdjieff, it's with... Um, I can't remember his name, but these guys were in contact with higher beings, man. It's very strange. And all these other people. I think that Manson was at Esalen a week before the murders happened, too. So okay. Manson was, okay. yeah, something like Manson was connected to it. 
John, we are at the 60 minute mark. Is there anything you'd like to add? Anything I missed? How do you want to wrap this up? Do you want to do an overview of your opinion on this book or, and where can people find you, connect, reach out to you, social media, et cetera? I think we covered a pretty, pretty good uh, amount of it. We covered most of the important historical stuff. Um, yeah. I mean, my, my last thoughts on it, I mean, you know, and the, uh, Reddit talked about it, you know, look, looked into it, research. I, I really don't see it as, you know, uh, as a warning against a, a, a dystopia. I really see it as sort of his tongue-in-cheek kind of dark comedic version of what he would ultimately like to see. And um, uh, where people can find me, you, know, you can go to my website, that's schoolworldorder.info, uh, and there's all my social medias on there. And, um, you know, anything else where you want to support me is you can get all the links there. Awesome. Yeah, really great talk. Thanks for sharing all that information, too. It's really an important book, but I think you're right. I don't think it's a warning. This is more of like, this is kind of this world that we could be going into. And this old world, the savage world, we're getting rid of it. I mean, he wrote, what, what was the, uh, the the scientific revolution or whatever? So he would knew about drugs and social engineering and stuff like that. I mean, he, you know, he was connected to the people that were, were that were working on it. He was into a lot of it himself. You know, I mean, and like I said, those that was just a handful of quotes. I mean, that's like a thirty-page thing that I that I piece, uh, pieced together. I mean, there's tons and tons more. I mean, basically everything in there, from the planning to the behaviorism to the psychedelics to the eugenics, it's all something that he either espoused or, uh, you know, promoted or was hanging out with people that were doing it or was involved in it himself so i mean yeah what's really really strange about him is i think he ended his life kind of with a hinduistic worldview like a reincarnation and the caste system which is really curious considering the arc of his life like as an intellectual and stuff like that but the the term soma is actually uh yeah i mean it's a it's a term for a muscle relaxer that they have but it's a sanskrit word like the first reference to soma is it was basically uh, it's in the vedas it was some nobody knows exactly what kind of drug it was but it was some sort of a drug and i believe he referred to his psychedelics as his moksha medicine and moksha is this idea in the hindu uh religion where basically you lose through meditation you basically lose your ego you lose your individual identity and you sort of the, the analogy is like you're a jar of water in the ocean and you basically dump the water out into the ocean and that's moksha. You become one with the divine or, you know, in, in the novel, the, the greater being, right. Which again, ties us back into, you know, he died, he died. Uh, he dosed himself right at the end of his life. Now, I don't know if he dosed himself to death or he knew he was dying and dosed himself, but it, I, he took a larger quantity of LSD on his way out. I think that he knew he, I think he was diagnosed with throat cancer in 60, died in 63, November 22nd, 63. So I think he had a sense that the end was on its way. So, um, but yeah, I mean, he actually coined the term psychedelic that comes from, from Huxley. So okay. we're still using these terms that he invented today, Doors of Perception, all that stuff. Anyway, John Kleisek, thank you so much for your time. Excellent talk. Really appreciate it. Keep in touch. Yes, and I will upload this right now. Thanks so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thanks, man. All right, stay there. Stay there. Stay there.